the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast brought to you by GenuCell. We thank them for their sponsorship. Hide your children. Really, that's what one person is suggesting. Hide your children because they're being targeted. Liz Wheeler is a conservative commentator. She has a podcast and she is the author of a new book called Hide Your Children. And it talks about how these Marxist ideologies are coming for kids. And by the way, this is nothing new. But her take on it is very interesting. And if you're interested in this recent uprising of parents pushing back against what is being, you know, infiltrating their kids' lives, you're going to want to hear this interview and it's next. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. So this will be my first meeting with Liz Wheeler. I'm excited to meet her. She's a a conservative commentator and an author of a new book called Hide Your Children. And it has to do with this Marxist ideology. You're hearing that word a lot lately. Marxist ideology that is infiltrating, boy, media, academia, uh, the, the legal world, all kinds of institutions. Is it coming for your kids? And how do you fight it? I mean, you're just you're just a parent. What do you do? Liz Wheeler's got some thoughts. She's coming up next. But first, you know what? Look in the mirror. Do you see some dark spots? They're not going to go away on their own. So Genucel has a solution. Introducing the dark spot corrector from Genucel right in time for the end of summer here. The dark spot corrector with not one but three cutting edge ingredients. It goes to work fast to target dark spots, sunspots, liver spots, and even old discoloration both on your face and your hands. And you're going to be amazed at how quickly you're going to see results. You can now enjoy your summer sun, days on the beach, barbecues, sitting out at your kid's base baseball game without the embarrassing spots. With Genucel, you'll see the results for your money back. And that's guaranteed. No questions asked. So go to Genucel.com right now and get your dark spot corrector with the new Genucel most popular package now featuring summer essentials like the best-selling ultra retinol moisturizer, which I love with a powerful retinol alternative for safe use in the summer sun. Visit genucel.com slash Michelle right now for these amazing summer essentials and save over 70% off Genucel's most popular package. Do not wait. Order Genucel's most popular package now. Free shipping, free returns, and the best luxury skincare you've ever used, all for 70% off. Genucel, it's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Michelle with one L. Genucel.com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E. All orders will include a mystery luxury gift while supplies last. Genucel.com slash Michelle. Coming up, Liz Wheeler suggests you hide your children. But she's got some solutions, too. That's next. Liz Wheeler, welcome. It's so good to finally meet you. Welcome to the show. I'm I'm excited to talk to you about all that you do. You're the host of the Liz Wheeler podcast, and you have a new book. This is your second book. Um, What prompted you to write this one, Liz? Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to finally meet you pseudo in person. I think this counts because we're seeing each other face to face. Yeah, my new book is called Hide Your Children, 
Exposing the Marxists Behind the Attack on America's Kids. A very intense title. I think we can all agree. I say this kind of (laughs) laughingly, but not because I had the same experience that a lot of parents had during COVID, where all of a sudden we realize that our children are under assault, that, you know, all you have to do is look over your kid's shoulder on Zoom school during COVID and see that they're being taught that they're racist if they're white or they're oppressed if they're black, just these really awful, horrible things that doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, every parent knows that that's wrong. Our children are being inundated with the transgender ideology on TikTok and in school. They're being told that your truth or my truth is more important than the truth. And I wondered, why is this happening? Where is this, where is this coming from? Why is it all happening at once? It seems like a concerted effort. And it turns out the answer to that question isn't so much of why is this happening as who is behind this? So what I do in this book is I name the names of the people who are behind the assault on America's kids. And it's, it, it becomes a little bit more complicated there because what I discovered is that this attempt to capture our children didn't just start during COVID. It's not something new. It's actually been a very slow, very concerted effort for decades. The left, as you know, as people watching the show know, have been attempting to re-engineer our society for a long time. And unfortunately, they've been pretty successful at it. I say that they have captured four out of the five foundational cultural institutions. They've captured the media. That's pretty obvious. They've captured the education system. Also pretty obvious. They've captured religion. They've captured the law. And they've almost destroyed the nuclear family. There's one element of the nuclear family that's left standing. That's children, which maybe makes sense why these Marxists, these radical leftists are going after our children. So I explore who is behind the capture of these institutions and therefore behind the assault on America's children. And then I offer a solution. It is, I will confess, a solution different than what the Republican Party offers for how we can reclaim these institutions and therefore protect our kids. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I know you're not going to want to spill all because you've got books to sell, uh, but this is interesting. First, I want, I, want, I want to remind people what Marxism is because I think this gets lost. I'm just looking at a, a, a random Google definition. Marxism is a method of socioeconomic analysis that uses a materialist interpretation of historical development, better known as historical materialism, to understand class relations and social conflict and a dialectical perspective to view social transformation. So, uh, you know, uh, it's we've got capitalism. We are a democratic republic and a capitalist society. And apparently there are enough people that are, I guess, in places of power that don't think this is good, that that would prefer 
a Marxist society. Why in the hell would they want that when we are the freest place on earth? Well, I'm glad you brought this up because this is one of the most common questions or reactions that I've gotten so far to this book is people are like, Marxists? Really? Are we talking about like Karl Marx, the Communist Manifesto? Mm. How is that kind of yeah. Marxism the same as what we're facing in school? And this is a completely valid question because let's be honest, conservatives and Republicans have used the term Marxist as an empty ad hominem on cable news airwaves for quite some time now. But the way I explain it is this. Back when Marxism came into being, when Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto, the way that he presented this to the world was that the ruling class was oppressing the working class. The working class should therefore revolt against the ruling class and thus usher in communism. That in and of itself was not a very successful theory. It didn't catch fire and spark this global transformation like Karl Marx wanted. It kind of died out in the 20th century. Some countries tried it, but by and large, um, it didn't work. So it, it, it was dormant. It had been rejected. But then we have this Marxist from Italy by the name of Antonio Gramsci. He was one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party, and he revived Karl Marx's Marxism, his economic Marxism, and transformed it into what we know as cultural Marxism. Gramsci recognized that Karl Marx's theory wasn't going to work, that the working class was never going to overthrow the ruling class as long as the working class relied on the institutions of the civil institutions, the cultural institutions of the ruling class. So Gramsci proposed an alternative. He said, what we should do is we should target the cultural institutions first. We should destabilize civil society in order to then topple the economic system and the system of government. And Michelle, that is what we're seeing today. Word for word, Gramsci was the one who named, among other institutions, the media, the education system, religion, the law, and the nuclear family as civil institutions that must first be destroyed before we can have the economic revolution. Okay, so what I'm wondering what they think the economic revolution is going to help, because as we've seen with communism in the past, it's killed more people than it's helped. We've seen that under Mao Zedong. We've seen communism at work and it's not good. So I, I'm I this is where I get lost. I don't understand why anyone would suggest that this is the better economic way to live. Well, there's, there's two categories of people here. There's the, ca there's the category of people that I would call the water carriers. This is maybe your, your average leftist who doesn't realize that they are taking part in Marxist ideology. They are duped because one of Marxism's favorite tactics is to redefine words. So you can take DEI for an example. Yeah. Diversity, equity, and inclusion, those are words that have a positive connotation to us. We think diversity of thought, equity yeah. is equality, inclusion is tolerance for other people's viewpoints. But what the Marxists have done is they've redefined those words. Diversity now is just tokenism. It's, it's racism. Mm -hmm. Equity is socialism. It's redistribution of outcome. Inclusion isn't inclusion at all. It's essentially religious persecution. They redefine these words and then people fall for it. People fall prey to the lies that they've been told by Marxists. That's the vast majority of the democratic electorate. Most Democrats are not Marxists. It's the leaders of these movements that are Marxists and the leaders of the movement are twofold. They either think that communism has never been tried correctly, that they somehow are different than every other communist in the history of the world, and that if they try it, it will work. Or you have the people that realize that it won't work, 
They don't care that you and I would be oppressed by communism, and they just want to collect wealth and power from oppressing people under a communist society. So it's not it's not that the average leftist is like Marxism. Let's try it. This is great. History be damned. <laughs> it's that they don't realize what they're buying into. Okay. Well, and and we do see it. Uh, you know, I, I I've seen it even before. Like you said. The, the, the silver lining of COVID was that we saw what our kids were being taught. We saw what the teachers unions were demanding. We saw uh, people like Randy Weingarten really showing her true colors about what it was she was trying to achieve, which is not educating our children properly. It was uh, indoctrinating them, for lack of a better term. Now, I get pushback from certain people a lot of the time say, oh, you're cherry picking examples. You're... But I, I I think the evidence is becoming overwhelming. Even before COVID, I would take my kids to see some movies. And it was so clear to me that there were political undertones to these films that were trying to teach kids that, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You can be an elephant if you want to be. You know, there, I remember that scene in a movie. Another scene where all the black wolves were being caged. Okay. Only the black wolves were being caged in this animated film. And I and I was just sitting there with my family shaking my head, and I didn't want to bring it up because my husband hates talking politics. Uh, but I was going, I, the, the messages are so clear to me, and I wonder how they're impacting my kids. But I, I think this stuff has been going on uh, for years, and that we've just sort of, I, I, I don't know why we've been in denial of it. I, if it. Maybe we think the intentions are good. Why, why hasn't the pushback started until now? Well, let me tell you an anecdote that I talk about in my book about Randy Weingarten first, because she's an incredibly powerful oh, political human. player on the left. Yeah. Yes, yeah. an incredibly powerful. She's a Democrat kingmaker, a Democrat politician kingmaker, yeah. essentially. She endorsed a woman by the name of Emily Drabinsky for president of the American Library Association. Now, the president of the American Library Association is incredibly powerful in choosing which books are in libraries, even in your own neighborhood, in the children's section in your own neighborhood. This this woman is essentially in charge of picking that. Emily Drabinsky is a self-avowed Marxist. When she won, when she won election to be the president of the American Library Association, she tweeted how is it that a lesbian Marxist could attain, obtain this position? I'm so proud. Mom, you would be so proud of me. Randy Weingarten endorsed this woman. These people, if you look close enough, they admit their ideology in their own words. It's not hidden. It's not an inference that I'm making. And once you see this, you can't unsee this. It's right there. Is this woman still in power? She is. She is still in power. And let, let me go back to your other question too, is, is how did, how did we allow the capture of our institutions? How has this been happening for decades and Republicans were seemingly caught unaware? Part of my book is a critique of the current Republican party, the current Republican establishment, because they are to blame and the conservative movement as a whole is to blame for allowing this to happen. We were incredibly naive as a movement. We were incredibly complacent. We had our heads buried in the sand as this happened. And it wasn't just because we personally didn't believe that Marxism would try to creep into our nation. It wasn't that sort of naivete. It's because Republicans forgot what our government was intended to do. This is the part where I differ quite, quite significantly from 
the Republican Party. When the Republican Party looks at the role of government in society, they've taken more of a libertarian view that the, that the purpose of government is simply to protect life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and to, and to keep everyone as absolutely free as they possibly can. Like, stay off my lawn. Government won't tell you what to do as long as you're not violating someone else's inherent God-given right. That is actually not the correct definition of freedom and of liberty. So one of the questions that I explore is, is freedom the ultimate end? Is it the ultimate goal? Or is freedom the means to something greater? It's really important that, that, and I challenge Republicans to grapple with this question, because if the answer is freedom is the ultimate goal, then things like Drag queen story hour, where grown men are dressed as sexualized versions of women gyrating in front of children, that would have to be inherently moral because they have the freedom to do that. Yet you and I sitting here and every parent listening to this knows that that's not moral. That's immoral. It's wrong. It's grotesque. So if that, if that, if something doesn't jive there, then we have to say, well, maybe the ultimate end of freedom, maybe freedom isn't the ultimate end. Maybe freedom is the means to something greater. And I make the argument that the means to something greater is an ordered society, a society ordered on justice. And as it turns out, this is not a new idea that I'm presenting. This is actually our constitutional heritage. Our constitutional heritage is not to a libertarian nation. It's to a nation that pursues order through the acknowledgement of natural law. And I know when I say natural law, some people are going to say, well, are you talking about religion? Are you talking about a theocracy? And yes, I'm talking about religion. And no, I'm not talking about a theocracy. Acknowledging natural law has nothing to do with whether you're a practicing Christian, practicing Jew, practicing Muslim, whatever. You don't have to do that in our country, as we all know. But our nation was built on a shared acknowledgement of what the definition of right, of wrong, of liberty, and of justice is. And if we don't, as a nation, acknowledge that those words have a definition, then we will descend into the chaos that we're experiencing today. That's that's a very powerful statement. Um, is there anyone on the political stage that you see today that shares your view in that way? Politicians, listen, I'm on team. I hate all politicians. I hate to say that because I've met <laughs> I've met some that are nice people, but I. Thank goodness, uh, as an individual, I, my personality, I simply don't, I'm not prone to putting people on pedestals. I like to listen to their ideas. I like to see if they have good ideas, bad ideas. I'm not afraid to criticize people. So I'm not really in the business of endorsing candidates. I feel like I'm more critical of the candidates that I like even than the candidates that I don't like because I want them to be held right. to the highest standard possible. I will tell you, there is a movement within the conservative movement as a whole that is embracing what I described before is essentially the view on liberty that was held by Edmund Burke versus the view on liberty that was held by John Locke. John Locke was the inspiration that Thomas Jefferson relied on for the Declaration of Independence. Edmund Burke was the inspiration James Madison relied on for the framing of our Constitution. There is a movement within the Republican Party right now that understands that government is not inherently evil. To have a, a, a democracy or a republic, a limited government, doesn't mean that, that Republicans shouldn't use the just authority of government to order society. In fact, we already do this. For example, children aren't allowed on the floor of a casino. They're not allowed um, to go in, a, in an establishment whose primary purpose is, the, is serving alcohol. They have to ride in right. car seats. We already have rules that aren't just protecting in, inherent human rights that are ordering society towards 
morals that we have agreed as a society are good and right and proper. I would argue, as Edmund Burke argued, as James Madison framed our Constitution to enact, that we need to get back to doing that, to relying on our vision of what society is supposed to be so that we're not just playing defense against poisonous ideologies that want to take us over, but we are creating a flourishing civilization where our families can thrive. Yeah, it does seem to me that we're we're living in a time when, as you mentioned earlier, and I completely agree on this one, Words like diversity, equity, and inclusion have been twisted to sound virtuous uh, when, in fact, what they're doing is not so virtuous. And people will argue about this. And as you've said, people who want to believe will believe that diversity is all good. But I have seen, I'm a parent like you, and I've spent the last, I don't know, 17 years watching how diversity doesn't always include diversity of thought. And it doesn't give... It, it, it it seems to force the inclusion of people who at, at, at the expense of others. For example, we see this movement to include trans women in women's sports, which we all know is unfair. And yet it's this virtue signaling of doing it that is supposed to make us feel good about it. And, oh, you don't want to exclude that person. Of course not. Everyone can compete in sports. But there is stuff like biology and, and Title IX that, that gave us these, these divisions in sport. And yet now we're trying to undo that. And it seems to me that's, that's one of those things where you start to feel things start to feel off balance and upside down and confusing and like the foundations of being are being shaken. And I, I, I think that's part of what you're saying, that this kind of attack on foundations and this this confusion of language and this twisting of language, equity and equality are not the same thing. So when you say diversity, equity and inclusion, equity says we guarantee outcomes. Well, the only way to guarantee outcomes is by lowering standards so every single person can clear the bar. That doesn't do anything for society in my mind. Am I am I are we seeing eye to eye on that? You're, you're exactly correct. In fact, both of the examples that you gave of diversity and of equity require discrimination against someone. Diversity, yeah. Yeah. Uh, whether it's in the name of skin color. I mean, look at, the, look at the example of the Supreme Court ruling on affirmative action, right? Look at, there was an interesting survey that was done in the wake of the Supreme Court saying that affirmative action for college admissions, taking into someone's, taking into account someone's skin color is unconstitutional. There was a survey done afterward asking the American people what they thought of affirmative action. Because if you watch the news, it seemed like, oh, Democrats support affirmative action. Republicans uh, oppose it. That's actually not true. Every single demographic, whether it was Republican, Democrat, racial demographics, black, white, men, women, young people, old people, the majority of American people in all of these categories think affirmative action is wrong because they understand that it not only when it comes to race, would be discriminatory towards white people or Asian people in the case of the Harvard admissions case. Um, it also right. renders black people just tokens. And that's so dangerous for many reasons. I mean, a black person then, if they're in Harvard, their classmates are going to look at them and wonder, are you here because of your merits, because you deserve to be here? Or are you here because you're the token black person that the Harvard ad admissions team wanted to let in? And even worse than that, it raises that question in the mind of that black person. 
This can be applied to yeah. to any diversity of when you're talking about sex, like Katanji Brown Jackson on the Supreme Court. I hate to say this. I know this sounds harsh, but if I were her, I would wonder, was I picked because I'm a woman and because I'm black, because I'm a black woman, or because I'm qualified to be here? And that's such an awful, racially divisive thing to be imposing on our country. The encouraging part of all of this is that if you take the partisan politics out of it, meaning if you take the cable news talking heads, if you take the elected officials out of it, the majority of the American people still have a conscience. They still know inherently, you know, they have reason. They know right from wrong. They know when something doesn't sit well in their gut and they see that this stuff is evil. Yeah. I sure hope that's true. I want to believe that that's true. I talked to Riley Gaines as a friend of mine, and, and I talked to her and people like Paula Scanlon who are fighting for saving women's sports. And they tell me that they feel far more support than they do black backlash. Oh, there's a there's a slip of the tongue than they do backlash on this. So on this save women's sports thing that they, they feel an overwhelming sense that people are on their side. I, I hope that's accurate. I wonder for you. Um, I mean, you're a young mom, uh, you are, you've got this podcast, you've got this book coming out. We all experience, everyone experiences some pushback from some corners of the internet, whatever it might be. How do you stand up to it? Because I'm sure that you get, I, I, I gotta believe that you get pushback from people who are just calling you a MAGA, you know, homophobe, transphobe, bigot. Like like anyone who is conservative gets called. What what do you how do you even bother to answer? What do you do when those people come along? Well, listen, I think fortunately, I'm a very thick skinned person. Maybe maybe I have a warped sense of humor. But half the time when the when all this vitriol comes at me, it just makes me laugh. I don't know why, because I guess it's not funny. But fortunately, it just rolls off my back. I'm also pretty experienced in handling this. I've been working in conservative politics and media for a long time. I've been a public figure for almost a decade. So this isn't something that's new. I will say right. I make sure that I have a very solid personal life, that my family and my friends are outside of the industry so I can separate my public life from my personal life, take refuge in my personal life after I've been on the battlefield of the political and cultural wars. Um, <laughs> sometimes, yes, it's worth, it's worth pushing back on. For example, right now, I've been, I've been engaging in a back and forth with Andrew Tate because obviously he's one of the most famous people in the world. He's incredibly influential, leading young men. I would argue leaving, leading young men astray. And it's, it's actually mind blowing to me that even some conservatives and some red pilled people are following Andrew Tate because he does diagnose the cultural ill correctly. He does diagnose the fact that our society attacks men, attacks masculinity, tells men that their desire to provide and protect and procreate is inherently bad and evil. And that's a, that's a bad and evil thing in and of itself. But what he does after he draws in young men by saying, I see you, I feel your, I feel your grievance. And you know, you're more than what the left is telling you is he offers as an, uh, an antidote. He, he prescribes poison. He says, well, the, the society's attacking you, but what will really fulfill you is materialism, pornography, exploitation of women and worship of self. So sometimes it's not just worth calling it out. It's, I, I mean, I'm called to call it out. Right. We have to fight back against these forces of cultural evil. And if I learned anything in writing this book, I learned how incredibly important the culture wars are, because that's actually where our opposition is fighting. They're trying to destabilize our culture. 
So yes, it's, it's, it's worth fighting back and wading into the trenches as long as you have that personal life refuge that you can, that you can go back to after a long day's work. My husband calls it the soft landing. You're always going to yes. find a soft landing here at the house, and and it it, it is nice to go to. Um, the last thing for you, I would ask, is you just mentioned what you found to be the most important thing in researching this book, and that's the culture wars and fighting back. So I would ask, based on all that you've done to put this book together, all that you've learned, all that you've discovered, how much success can we have? I feel sometimes. Like the toothpaste is out of the tube and there's no going back. I don't like to think that way. And I, and I do this job because I, I do believe that we have to fight back. But how, how, how are we going to do it? What, what do we need to do? So I got into a little squabble with my editor when I was when I was putting together my manuscript because the last chapter in my book, it's chapter 12, he told me was intimidating for a president of the United States, let alone flustered parents across the country. And I said, I don't care. We've heard all these platitudes from Republican, from Republican officials, elected politicians, as well as people that are supposed to be conservative thought leaders, all these platitudes on how, how, you know, this problem will solve itself if we just properly order our personal lives, if we just pray, if we just, you know, if we just, if we just make sure that at home everything's good. And it, I, I'm not knocking that. That's true that that's important. But what I do in chapter 12 is I offer 12 concrete steps. They're not easy. They are intimidating. They're not always things that we as individuals can do ourselves, but they're things that we can use the government to do to eradicate this poison, whether it's critical race theory, transgender ideology, the technocracy of the experts that we all encountered during COVID, moral relativism, your truth, my truth versus the truth. There are things that we have the just authority to use government to do to get rid of that to fight back against woke corporations. So I, I made a blueprint for any politician to, to take action on and for individual citizens like you and me and everyone watching this to pressure our politicians to do. They Remember, they work for us. We are their boss. Yes. And it's time that we got some action from them. Absolutely. That cannot be un- overstated. They work for us. We elect yes. them. We pay their salaries. And the fact that people put them on such pedestals sometimes really bothers me. They should be putting us on the pedestals. We are the citizens. We are the people in this country who generate taxes. And we elected you to go represent us. Not We didn't do that to put you on this pedestal and say, oh, we worship you. No, go represent us. Do what we ask. Do what we demand. That's listen to us. So um, I, I I love that idea. This is so interesting. Hideyourchildrenbook.com. You can learn more about this book. Uh, it's it, it's quite something. I think you raised some really interesting points, Liz. And it's great to finally meet you and have you on the show. And I hope we can do it again. And all the best with the book. Good luck. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on the show. It was really fun. Yep. Right back at you. She is Liz Wheeler. The book is Hide Your Children. You can find it at HideYourChildrenBook.com. I'm Michelle Tafoya. As always, be brave, as clearly Liz is, and do good. And we'll see you next time.
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.